Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Yesterday, Governor Tom Wolf proposed the 2016-17 state budget that includes more than $33 billion in spending and would raise taxes by $2.7 billion. The governor's calling for a $200 million increase in K-12 education spending, $60 million more for early childhood education, and an additional $50 million on special education. The governor is also looking for more money for human services and drug and alcohol treatment programs. Wolf proposed an increase in the minimum wage from $7.25 to $10.15 an hour. Of course, Pennsylvania still doesn't have a final budget for the current fiscal year. On today's program, we'll hear from both Republicans and Democrats on the governor's budget proposal. Joining us first is Senate Minority Leader, Democratic Senator Jay Costa of Allegheny County. Senator Costa, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott, very much. Happy to be here with you. Let me tell our listeners at home that if you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Senator, there's a lot to digest, but uh, what are your overall thoughts on what Governor uh, Governor Wolf proposed yesterday? Well, I think the governor was very direct in his approach to um, addressing the situation we have here before us in Pennsylvania. I think he was very clear about the desire to make sure that folks recognize and realize that we have a pretty significant fiscal crisis in Pennsylvania, and that was the theme of his budget address yesterday. Uh, we have to come to grips with the reality that we don't have enough revenue to just fund the, really the basic operations of Pennsylvania's government. And that includes education spend, that includes human service programs and the like, as you mentioned. And that's something that um, we've not been able to come to grips with. We have to address it. That's what the governor indicated to us in very strong words. And, and, you know, and his other point was that, you know, we had an agreement in place. Um, a structural agreement, a budget agreement, rather, that would have provided for uh, not only the expenditures that we wanted to do, both Democrats and Republicans wanted to do and agreed to do, but also the revenue package that would assist that to allow that to take place. And uh, at the last moment, at the end of December, uh, folks walked away from that uh, bipartisan agreement, and, and that's the situation we're in today. I want to talk about all those things in just a moment, but uh, a few th- items that you mentioned there. Uh, when you said that the governor was very direct. Uh, he also was critical of House Republicans in particular, mm-hmm. uh, something we're not used to hearing in a budget address. And you, you have to wonder, and I mean, just as an observer looking at it, whether that helps the process when you haven't been able to negotiate uh, an agreement for the, the, the this current fiscal year, but that criticism, public criticism, whether it brings people to the table willing to compromise. Well, I don't think it it's going to be harmful in that respect because it was reality. It was the truth. Uh, that was the party that on three occasions stood with the governor, their leaders stood with the governor, and said that we agreed to this framework, this bipartisan agreement. On the Senate side, we began to implement the parts and pieces of that. We passed a pension reform measure that addressed that issue by overwhelming. Which was one of their priorities. Which is their priority. We passed a liquor modernization proposal, which was their second priority. We passed a spending plan of $30.8 billion and then we were poised to pass what needed to be done with respect to the revenue side that would have addressed the structural deficit not only for 15-16 but for 16-17. And I guess I said earlier, the group walked away from the table and and that's unfortunate. So folks need to be reminded and told of that but more importantly when they walked away from the table they failed to recognize and failed to address the fact that uh, we have a structural deficit in Pennsylvania. With respect to the bill that the Republicans ultimately put on the governor's desk at the end of December we have an obligation to pass a balanced budget. 
And what they put on the table and on the governor's desk was a budget that's $318 million short of being balanced. That, to me, is a dereliction of the responsibility. Secondly, those aren't my numbers. Those aren't the governor's numbers. Those aren't the Republican numbers. Those are the numbers of the Pennsylvania Independent Fiscal Office, an independent agency we created specifically for the purpose to bring reality and truthfulness to budget numbers. And that's what they're telling us. And they're also telling us that if we don't do something now, that next year's budget deficit is going to be $1.8 billion. Again, not my numbers or governors or Republicans, IFO's numbers. $1.8 billion. They came out with their report a few weeks ago. Now, the question is, what's the consequence of not providing for those revenues? We only have a handful of places where we can go. We have many, many obligations about how we spend our dollars in Pennsylvania. Where do we end up going? They're going to end up, if we have no additional revenue, we're going to look to education, and education reimbursements back to the school districts will be cut dramatically. What does that mean? That means that every homeowner in Commonwealth of Pennsylvania is likely to experience property tax increases. We've seen it from 2011 to 2015, where almost 80% of the school districts have increased their property taxes. You're going to see it in larger class sizes. So when kids are in classes of 15 or 18 or 20 and 25, that grows to 30 and 32 and 33 because school districts don't have the ability to be able to operate their schools in the same manner. Extracurricular activities go by the wayside. So the story goes on. Human service programs, we're not going to have as many community providers, whether they be drug and alcohol, where the governor wants to emphasize again this year, or whether or not they're mental health programs in the communities. Those are all the things that are get, that get lost when you don't have the revenue to be able to drive down to the schools or to the counties to be able to fund. On a normal day after the governor has uh, <clears throat> given his budget address, we'd be talking about that budget address in particular. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're in uncharted waters when it comes to uh, the budget process because we don't have a, a fiscal year budget right now or one that's uh, been completed. So we do have to go backwards a little bit. You, you talked about uh, House Republicans in particular walking away from the budget. One of the reasons that they did that was they said, we're not going to support a tax increase. With this budget proposal that uh, Governor Wolf had yesterday, he's asking for another $2.7 billion in tax taxes, increased uh, earned income tax, uh, shale tax, which is a little higher than what he had asked for originally. If you couldn't get that tax increase passed last year or this year, really, how are you going to get $2.7 billion passed in for this budget? Well, a couple of things. I think the, the in the aggregate, the amount that the governor wants to generate um, would encompass revenue for this year and for next year. So that, let's be clear, that it's going to satisfy what the shortfall we have this year and also going forward next year. With respect to Marcellus, while he did ask for that, but I think the governor did this year, what he didn't do last time was provide for a credit on with respect to the impact fee. So although the percentage seems higher than before... Yes, yeah, 6.5% this year. Right. Yeah. You have to take into consideration that he's going to extract from that uh, about $200 million in credits that the companies who would be paying the extraction tax, they'll see a reduction. So it won't necessarily, the, the net effect would only be like 3%, 3.5%. Uh, but we're not looking for a whole lot of revenue from the Marcellus community right now. That becomes something that, given the situation, the price, price and alike. Yeah. Um, but that's something, again, it's it's about being part of the solution. And that's where I think folks want us to have the Marcellus community be part of a solution going forward, now and going forward. And that's important. But with respect to now versus later, at the end of the day, what we have to decide is what path we want to go down. Do we want to get on a path where we're not going to generate revenue and then have to suffer the consequences of that? And what we end up doing is pushing it down to the local level. We don't fund schools. If we extract a billion dollars out of the schools going forward, 
you're going to drive down, drive up property taxes to the local school district. It's already happened in the past with the Corbin administration. That's what we're heading towards. We're going to increase class size. We're going to be able to not provide the services in our schools that, that we have to do. Same thing with the other programs that we talked about. So we can get on that path, but we have to suffer the consequences. Or we can get on the path where we can come together, have a conversation, negotiate a reasonable revenue package that is going to allow us to meet the needs of Pennsylvania. What the governor did in his approach this this week, as you said, is uncharted territory. In my view, what he's done now is we've laid out the parameters of our conversation. We know what the House did in 1460 and the shortfall that they had, which is the House bill that get the governor's budget, that, that most of which, 85, 87 percent, is being funded. Uh, so we have to close out that 15 percent. But we also have next year's budget. Now we have the parameters to be able to do that. For, and for example, we thought we had $350 million in the governor's education spend. From the 15-16, he wants to add 200. That's 550. The House gave us 150. So one starting point is 150. The other starting point is 550. Now our job is to go work and figure out how we make that happen. What level, what, what, where can we find on that spectrum amount of money we'll be able to do and also a revenue package that, that, that we're able to get through the General Assembly. Senate Republicans were ready to stand with us and support a revenue package as part of the framework agreement that I mentioned earlier. We just have to get our House Republican caucuses to do the same. Mm. Yeah, I hate to talk about process because it's one of those things that most people listening, their, their eyes will glaze over. Yeah. But we have to talk about process here. Mm. Uh, because this is unprecedented, that we do not have a, a current fiscal year budget in place while another budget has been introduced. How do you go about it? I saw a quote from you yesterday where you said, I don't really know how we're, how we're going to do this. I mean, have you thought about that? Any well, direction from the administration? Well, I think what we have to realize is the, the governor did sign a budget. He line-item vetoed parts of it. So, in effect, you've got about, I believe it's been estimated, about 87% of the general fund budget has been appropriated and is, 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 is a regular budget. So a lot of those line items that I mentioned are getting funded. With respect to the remaining 13%, they're largely in the areas of education, human some human service stuff, and also um, some corrections resources. So we, we, we now have to work down a path that we close the gap. Where do I think this is going? At the end of the day, what I think you'll see happen is probably, you know, it's not going to happen between now and, let's say, petitions, for example, because that's an issue that people are concerned about. But my guess is that after the election, April 26 or so, uh, that's when we'll really start to focus in on what we need to do and then be able to put together what needs to be done to close out 15-16 and then move forward on 16-17. But to me, that's going to be the process. So what's going to happen now? We're going to have folks who are going to uh, go through the appropriation hearing process, both in the Senate and the House, for the next three weeks. And we'll come back together, as I mentioned, sometime in mid to late March to begin the process of negotiating a budget. But I think you'll likely see action where votes are being cast. And my hope is sometime in, in the May time frame where we can close out both 15, 16, and 16, 17 going forward so that we don't find ourselves in the same predicament that we find ourselves in today. But it's going to require, going to require hard work. It's going to require commitment. It's going to require tough votes and a decision by folks about what direction they want to take Pennsylvania. Down the same path where we manage decline, or down a path that's going to allow us to make investments, modest investments, to maintain our government without uh, unduly burdening the Pennsylvania taxpayers. Reality is, and you just touched on it, is that uh, we have an election. We have a primary election on uh, April 26th. Now, granted, 
probably most districts, uh, most incumbents don't face uh, don't face opposition. And we know that's the situation here in Pennsylvania. But is it realistic to think that uh, we will have people who will put up votes for a tax increase before that April twenty sixth election? Before April twenty sixth election, probably not likely. In all you know, in all likelihood, not likely to happen before April twenty sixth. However, I do believe that uh, we'll have a much clearer picture after April twenty sixth. But but again, our job is to is to fund government at a level that I think parties can agree upon without unduly burdening taxpayers. And I think that's what we have to focus on. We have a structural deficit that has the governor's requesting significant additional increases in education. You know, he's not going to get everything he wants. As I said earlier, Republicans already said 150. You know, we want, you know, the governor's saying in total 550 for the two-year period. Well, at the end of the day, we have to figure out where on that spectrum we can find common ground. And we thought we did have that already, but that blew up at the end of December. But we now got to go back to the table and figure that out between now and then. And that's just on the education piece. Human services, another area. Economic development's another area. Job growth, job creation programs, that need, those need to be the priorities we have to talk about. And I applaud the governor for wanting to make additional investments, particularly in the drug and alcohol area. You know, I come from Allegheny County, and in our area, we're dealing with uh, not only just Allegheny, but Westmoreland and Beaver and Butler and the like. Uh, we're all dealing with some pretty significant um, uh, drug issues, uh, particularly the heroin and opioid epidemic that I think that we, uh, so I think it's appropriate and resources that will be well spent in Pennsylvania. Well, the, the entire state is, and I think I'm that, sure. that yep. you know, you could answer this better than I, but uh, that seems to be a bipartisan issue. That, There's no uh, question it's bipartisan. Both yep. Republicans and Democrats realize that that's a huge issue here in Pennsylvania. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Our guest during this portion of the program is Senate Minority Leader, Democratic Senator Jay Costa of Allegheny County. Coming up a little later in the program, we'll be talking with the House Majority Leader, Dave Reed. We're discussing Governor Wolf's budget proposal from yesterday. We welcome your questions and comments. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. Let's take a phone call from Avery. Avery, you're on the air. Hello, Avery. Go ahead. Okay, I don't know if he. And I'll tell our listeners that uh, if you uh, if you you want to you want to get on the air, don't listen to the radio because there is a delay system. Listen to your phone, and that's where you'll uh, be able to hear uh, hear the answer and hear the conversation. Um, one thing I noticed that didn't get a lot of attention is that Governor Walsh's budget is proposing an increase for the legislature: forty million dollars for the Senate. $36 million for the House. Why? Well, I think that would restore both the House and the Senate back to the original number that was passed as part of the fourteen fifteen budget. Uh, you may recall, Scott, when Governor Corbett uh, wasn't happy with the legislature, went in and line-item vetoed both the House and the Senate. Um, in our case, I think he cut us about 20%, which was about $30 million. And in the House side, I think it was 10% and about $20 million. So at the end of the day, the reason for that is um, the Governor Corbett was not happy with the legislature, cut their line items unilaterally, cut those lines uh, under where, you know, significantly. And since that time, uh, we've been operating under primarily exhausted all of our reserves. And now we're at a place where, uh, in order to properly function as a separate and distinct separate, you know, branch of government, uh, resources along those lines are needed. So I think that's something both Democrats and Republicans need to look at. In fact, if you go back and look at the Republican-passed House Bill 1460, it had the 
Senate and House lines at the same level that Governor Corbett, or excuse me, Governor Wolf has put into his budget are relatively close to that. Uh, but there's this, this, this belief that among Democrats, Republicans, and administration, that that branch of government, as the courts, need to be properly funded. Not that we're looking for major increases. Or, you know, we've been reducing staff and everything else significantly. Uh, but at the end of the day, there's a level that you must maintain to be able to be an effective uh, f- branch of government. When you said that that bipartisan, you wouldn't be surprised if uh, the listeners out there said, well, we agree with that. We yeah. think that there would be bipartisan support for that one. You touched on a number of different issues mm-hmm. here, but of the things that uh, Governor Wolf proposed yesterday, what's the most important to you? I, I really think that we have to make investments in education. And, and I also think, I'm personally very concerned, I think my members are as well, uh, investments in human services, restoration of human services. With respect to education, particularly our early learning dollars, you know, to me, those are the best dollars that we can spend, helping our kids get off to the right, you know, building the right foundation for our kids in terms of their learning and educational experience is so critically important. But it doesn't stop there. It goes from the early learning programs, pre-K and, and, and kindergarten, all the way through 12th grade, and also into higher education. So to me, the, the comprehensive education approach to governor taken is probably the highest priority that we have to address because that's what's going to set us apart from other states. When we made investments in the Rendell years in education, our kids did very, very well. We were a leader among states. Everything you looked at, whether it was scores that related to the different subject matter, or different grade levels, we always saw achievement, increased achievement, and we also saw the closing of the sort of the disparity gap. When we stopped investing in education during the Corbett years, we saw the changes and decline along those lines. Uh, we need to invest in our kids, and that's what this is about, and we're fighting to be able to do that. On human service programs, I think that we have a lot of work to do. The cumulative effect of the Corbett years was that he probably cut about $400 million out of human service programs. Now, these are drug and alcohol programs that are in the communities. These are county programs we send to the county, the county provides, has a bunch of providers providing those community services. Those doors are closing, and folks don't have access to those type of programs anymore like they used to. The consequences are that those folks who need that service and the families that need that help end up finding themselves in emergency rooms, end up finding themselves in the correctional system some way, or the, you know, and, 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 and problems are developing, and we see that played out at the local level. So they're bearing the expense of all those type of things that are not where we're not funding. Whether it's drug and alcohol, mental illness programs, homelessness programs, you go right down the line. You know, domestic violence centers and the like. All those collective programs have been reduced. And we have to make sure we make investments along those lines. And that last area is job growth and economic development and community revitalization. When we make investments in our communities, you know, people end up working. And when they work, they bring stability to the neighborhoods and to communities that make everything work. So it's about making investments in Pennsylvania and those areas as opposed to trying to manage decline going forward. And we believe that we need to make investments. Let's go to the phone now. Peter is on the line. Peter, you're uh, on the air. This is actually a question for each of your guests today. Um, how how can you have confidence you can make a deal with somebody with whom you reach an understanding and an agreement, and then they simply cannot deliver that they can actually come forth, come to the table, reach an agreement, and that the public can have confidence that once that agreement is reached, it will be followed through on? I will hang up and take your answers, hopefully both of them, off the air. All right. Thank, thank you very much. Um, you know, that's a great question. You know, we thought we had agreement, as I mentioned, on multiple occasions. Folks changed their mind or walked away or weren't able to deliver. 
Um, so it's tough. But, you know, we have a process that requires five parties to really participate and work together to bring to a, a consensus. And you just have to have faith that um, that the party that, uh, that each of the parties can deliver on their commitment. And um, so, you know, it's I guess it's a matter of faith that you know, we, we need to do it and they will do it in the end. But, boy, it's certainly frustrating to be at this point. That trust issue is is a big one for the people of Pennsylvania, because if I could just read between the lines with uh, Peter's question is, you know, we've heard a lot about trust in government lately and that many people, not just in this state, but across the country are cynical and wonder whether they can trust government to do the right thing and not play politics. The legislature, if I go by the Franklin Marshall College poll just a few weeks ago, uh, the legislature is being blamed for this budget holdup more than, than Governor Wolf. How do you restore that trust in your institution? Well, I think it starts by restoring that trust uh, within our, our part of the institution. When I say our part, our, our chamber the Senate chamber. What I can say to folks is that when we reached an agreement, we sat down with our Senate re- colleagues, we're Senate Republican colleagues, and, and we reached consensus. And it was tough. On pension legislation, which was their highest priority, we reached an agreement. And we passed the pension bill in a bipartisan way, 43 to 7, um, that reflected the compromise agreement that we reached in the Senate that was supposed to move forward in the House. Um, we did the same thing with the liquor modernization proposal. We came together, bipartisan vote, that did that as well. The budget agreement. While folks weren't happy with everything, we reached an agreement, and we acted upon that, implemented it. We did, I think it was 43 to 7 vote in the Senate uh, on that particular issue, which was sent over to the home. And then we were prepared, and we had a handshake agreement on the number of votes each side of the Senate chamber would provide with respect to the revenue that we needed. So those are the, I can only tell folks the things that we did within our side of the building um, that reflected uh, a, a commitment in honoring agreements and moving forward to put trust back in the folks. We said this is what we were going to do. We identified what people wanted us to address. They wanted us to address the budget, revenue, pension, and, and wine and spirit modernization. All four of those issues we were we dealt with and were prepared to, prepared to continue to move forward along those lines. So they say to us, these are the issues that are important to us. We acted upon them. That to me demonstrates that, at least as it relates to the, our caucus, our chamber, that there's a level, of, we're trying to establish that level of trust with the, with the, the, the Pennsylvania residents. Mm. Uh, but that, that pension bill that you talked about, mm-hmm. uh, even though it was passed in the Senate overwhelmingly, in the House, Democrats voted against it as well. There's no question that they did, and some of our Democratic members voted against it, but it was, a, I think, a 38 to 9 vote in the Senate, 38 to 11 vote that we were short one member. Um, because he'd retired and left. But I do think that um, it did represent the difficult nature of that particular vote. It was not something that they were able to garner the votes uh, in the House for. But I, my guess is that if they got a second opportunity to go vote that again, I think that you might see a different outcome. Okay. Let's take a call from Jim. Jim, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Hi. Um, I, I consider myself to be a moderate. Sometimes I vote for Republicans. Sometimes I vote for Democrats. And, and uh, a lot of people said that uh, Governor Wolf uh, came off as pretty angry yesterday. I have to say that I think his anger was entirely justified. I, I don't support everything that, uh, that the governor put in, in his budget proposal, but I, it, it just uh, amazes me that the Republican uh, leadership in the legislature cannot agree on a Marcellus uh, Shale tax, uh, severance tax. 
uh, we are the only state with significant Marcellus resources that does not have a severance tax. There are deep, deep uh, red states, Texas, Oklahoma, uh, Louisiana, West Virginia. They all have severance taxes. We don't have a severance tax. We should have had the severance tax years and years ago when uh, oil and gas were at high levels, but uh, we should act now. I, I just, I, I really wish you would ask uh, Representative Reed to justify why on earth Pennsylvania should leave that money on the table and not have a severance tax like all the other states. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Well, I, I, I agree. I think that, you know, we, uh, Senate Democrats, have long been pushing for a severance tax. My colleague Jim Brewster, five, six years ago, talked about connecting Marcellus extraction tax to investments in education. You know, um, and I would tell you that in the House and in the Senate, if a Marcellus proposal was put to the floor, it would pass overwhelmingly in both chambers. So there's no question that it's a leadership decision to hold that moving forward. But at the end of the day, you know, it's not so much, you know, I agree with the caller when the governor was justified, I think, in his anger towards the legislature. Uh, most importantly, as I mentioned earlier, when, when they pass a budget that's $318 million short of being balanced, that creates a problem. But at the end of the day, we can't look at the numbers. What we have to look at is that we have an obligation, and we have to make a decision about going down what path we want to is it going to be a path that's going to lead us uh, to manage decline, as I like to call it, or, or are we going to make investments in Pennsylvania? My choice is, and I think our Democrats along, and I think many Republicans as well, want to help make investments as we go forward. And it's not about the specifics of the number or last year's budget or the framework agreement. It's about now. We know where we're at in time. This point in time, we have one job to do, is reconcile 15-16's budget with 16-17's. Let's sit down. We know the parameters of where we need to be with respect to a budget, and we know what the parameters are with respect to a, a structural deficit that has to be addressed. Let's sit down and let's figure that out. Let's reach compromise as we did before. And wherever those numbers might be, that's what we have to move forward and advance and get it done before June 30th. One final question, Senator. Uh, Representative Reed will be with us in just a few minutes. Um, taking a, a, you know, aside from the tone that the governor took yesterday, uh, if you know, you you took that rancor out of the room, and you were to sit down to negotiate with your colleagues uh, on the Republican side uh, today. How would you start that conversation? Well, I think we have to start it certainly with uh, reconciling the structural deficit and how we figure that out and what parts of that are in that mix. You know, there are other other things aside from taxes that'll be part of the conversation that we support. Well, you know, we talked about, of course, Marcellus is a tax, but to, it's a new piece to this particular puzzle. One of the things that we feel we have to talk about in some fashion is property tax relief. I think that one of the things that we can get members to support revenue would be discussing property tax relief some way, whether it be a senior property tax freeze, whether it be an expansion of the property tax and rent and rebate program, whether we drive out checks for $1,900 uh, the way the Senate Democrats have been talking about. But property tax needs to be part of that equation, and there's revenue that we can glean from that as that process. You know, folks want us to take a look at, for example, expanding gaming in Pennsylvania. I'm not a big proponent of that. I think that we've already taxed enough. You know, we already have enough gaming, but there are many people who believe that gaming may be one way that we can get some short-term infusion of about $120 million and then 40 or $50 million a year thereafter. 
if that needs to be part of the solution, then, and I'm certainly open-minded to consider it, but not where I think we need to start. So we have to have that conversation about what are the policy issues that have revenue attached to them that we need to look at to get to a place where we can then go f- and figure things out. And then from there, we start to look at some of the other, maybe the, the expansion of the sales tax, for example, the governor talked about, or maybe a might, you know, smaller PIT increase, or maybe you know tobacco product taxes and the like. Those then become into play. But it's just not all about increasing folks' taxes. It's about a broader menu of revenue options that help us get where we need to get to. And certainly, you know, spending is an issue. You know, we don't have to spend the governor's number. That's that again, as I said, set the outside parameter. Let's work to find on that spectrum where where spending and revenue can be meet and then we have a consensus about where we go and then we have to honor the commitment that we reach and move forward. Senate Minority Leader, Democratic Senator Jay Costa of Allegheny County. Thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, My pleasure. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. Now, we just heard uh, from the Democratic side. Let's turn to the Republicans. When Governor Wolf proposed his 2016-17 state budget yesterday, it marked the first time in the state's history that it came before the state had a final budget in the current fiscal year. Republicans led by Republicans in the House wouldn't agree to tax increases called for by Wolf. The governor's latest spending plan asked for approval of $2.7 billion in higher taxes. Now, let's just sets the background for our next guest, House Majority Leader, Republican Representative Dave Reed of Indiana County. Representative Reed, thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with uh, the broad question. Your thoughts on the governor's uh, budget proposal yesterday? Well, it, it was an interesting proposal from a couple of different vantage points. Number one, I've never actually sat through a budget address that never talked about the budget um, or the particulars that the governor was proposing. But number two, look, it, it's very simple. What led to the budget impasse that has still allowed 13% of the current fiscal year's budget not to be complete, it's the governor's request for enormously high taxes. And to hear the governor come back with another proposal that doubles down on that same philosophy, I mean, over a two-year time frame, $3.6 billion in new taxes, a retroactive income tax, um, I think those are going to be non-starters in the House and in the Senate. Now, you know, I, I mentioned to Senator Costa that uh, on a normal day after a governor's budget address, we would be talking about that budget in particular. But in this case, we kind of have to go backwards because it's a big part of it. When you say that the reason that uh, House Republicans uh, rejected the, the governor's budget proposal or, you know, the one that was blue lined uh, is the, 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 the tax increases, what the governor pointed out yesterday and has continued to point out is that there was a framework in place and that your caucus had, I I won't use the term signed off on, but had agreed to, and he keeps going back to what he calls the framework. What happened? Well, I think what the governor forgets to note, when we dealt with a framework at the beginning of November, that framework had property tax reform, had restrictions on future property tax increases, had a new funding formula for basic education, had pension reform, and had liquor privatization in addition to closing the structural deficit and adding more money to education. By the time we got to Christmas, the only thing left was higher taxes for higher spending, and that's not something we're agreeable to, nor do I think anybody is particularly agreeable to a proposal like that. And I know for the last month the governor has harped on, 
you know, just let my budget proposal come up for a vote. It's you House Republicans who are refusing to give it an opportunity. Well, this Monday we gave the House Democrats that opportunity. They filed that particular budget as an amendment to another bill. We gave them the opportunity. They refused to allow that vote on the House floor. They withdrew their own amendment. They withdrew their own proposal that they had so much confidence they had support for in the House. So I think if it wasn't back in December, it should have been on Monday, that everybody can recognize that framework is dead because everything that was part of the original framework is gone. Let's close out the 15-16 budget in a rational fashion, and let's move on and have a lot of these broader policy discussions for the next budget season. See, you just touched on the question that many people across the state have, and that is, how are we going to get this done? Because, uh, you know, we have no policy, we have no procedure, we have no rules written for not having a budget in place when another one has been proposed. Uh, How do you see this playing out? Well, I think the first thing folks need to remember is we've got 87% of the budget done. It's enacted. The money is flowing, partially the money to the school districts, most of the money to the human service agencies, and all other aspects of government. We have 13% that the governor vetoed that's still incomplete. I think the best way to conclude that budget cycle is for us in the House, Republicans and Democrats, in the Senate, Republicans and Democrats, to sit down and see where we have an agreement where we can get 102 votes in the House and 26 in the Senate, and then close out that budget cycle, and then we can begin anew. We can bring all the other policy items back to the table. We could talk about pensions. We could talk about liquor. We could talk about education funding. We could talk about structural deficits. We could talk about property tax reform or property tax elimination. But the current fiscal year's budget will be complete. The governor's tone was unusual during his address yesterday, especially his criticism of Republican House members. Obviously, there's some bad blood there. Uh, Will those feelings toward one another keep this from, maybe I should put it this way, keep it going longer than what it has to? Look, I understand the governor's frustration, and, you know, he's shown that frustration for much of the last year. He spent three, four, five million dollars of his own money sending out mail pieces and TV ads attacking the very folks he wants to support his agenda. But at the end of the day, we're going to be the adults. We're going to get governed. We're not interested in just innuendos and rhetoric. I understand the governor gave whatever budget speech he wanted to give yesterday. If that's the way he wants to approach it, that's fine. We'll talk to the other adults in the room, the House Democrats, the Senate Democrats, the Senate Republicans, and we'll work together as a legislature to put together a funding package that we support. Now, when you say that the House Republicans, that you're working to govern, you know, that has been the criticism of not just your caucus, but the entire state government during this whole process, that the, the public is frustrated that they see, you know, this is your main job, getting a budget passed, and that we haven't been able to do it. So We've, act- we've actually passed three budgets to the governor. We passed a budget last June. We passed a stopgap budget in September, and we passed another budget in December to the governor, of which he vetoed the first two, even though the stopgap budget he actually asked for and then decided he was going to veto it. And then the last budget, he signed 87% of it into law. And it's not like these budget proposals were anything outside the norm. I mean, for goodness sakes, the last budget we sent him had a $150 million increase in basic education alone, $400 million total increase in education, as well as investing in other aspects of state government, including human services. The only thing it didn't include, 
was all the governor's tax increase proposals because we were not willing to spend the amount of money the governor wanted to spend and raise those sort of taxes on the people of Pennsylvania. And now folks can see why, because the governor came back with a retroactive income tax. So not only does he want to take more money out of our pockets in the future, he wants to go back to every single person that works in this state and says, we're going to deduct money from your paycheck going forward, and we're going to take money out of your piggy bank in the past for the first couple months of this year. Right, Representative Reed, you there? Yes. Oh, okay. I, I just, it sounded like uh, the phone cut off. Well, let me just follow up on that. The governor s- said that uh, Republicans uh, or those who uh, 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 you know didn't go along with uh, the budget that uh, he signed uh, in December are ignoring the reality of the state's fiscal condition and that there is a big structural deficit. And he promised, and he promised when he ran for election, more money for schools. You just uh, stated that uh, you know what you had agreed to included uh, more money for school. Higher education has taken a large cut over the last few years. Human services too. Uh, many of these expenditures are mandates, as the governor's pointed out. Uh, so, how can you come up with that money? I mean, first of all, how do you see the structural deficit, and how do we come up with the money for the structural deficit and for some of these other things that we need? Well, the first thing we need to talk about is higher education, because you pointed it out. We sent the governor a 5% increase for the state system of higher education. We're ready to send the governor for the state-related universities, Pitt, Penn State, Lincoln, and Temple, a 5% increase as well. He line-item vetoed the 5% increase out of the state system and refuses to allow the House Democrats and the Senate Democrats to support the state-related universities because they require a two-thirds vote to get to his desk. He happens to be the one holding up funding for higher education to help reinvest in our students and bring down uh, college loan debt. As far as a structural deficit goes, we don't disagree. We want a balanced budget. We want to repair any structural deficit that may exist. But it's a little disingenuous when you have a governor talking about a structural deficit and fixing a structural deficit and then propose a couple billion dollars in new spending on top of fixing the structural deficit. How about we have the discussion, let's fix the structural deficit, and then when the state is in a better fiscal position, then the governor can propose all of his new taxes for all of his new spending. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Our guest during this portion of the program is House Majority Leader, Republican Representative Dave Reed of Indiana County. We're talking about Governor Wolf's budget proposal made yesterday. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Let's talk about some of the specifics. We had a call in the first portion of the program with Senator Costa, who supported the severance tax proposal on natural gas that uh, Governor Wolf has proposed. As uh, that caller pointed out, Pennsylvania is the only state that uh, does not have a severance tax. Yes, we have the impact fee, but we do not have the severance tax. Will members of your caucus support a tax on natural gas at this point? I think the first thing that needs to be pointed out, the impact fee is in essence a severance tax. The effective rate of the impact fee right now with where natural gas prices are is 12%. The governor's proposing a 5% severance tax. We've got an effective tax rate of 12%, and he wants to look back and go to a 5% effective tax rate with a severance tax. And look, the bottom line is whether folks want to support a severance tax or not because they feel better because we have a tax called a severance tax is one thing. 
But if you want to have a real budgetary discussion, there's no money in a severance tax right now because the natural gas industry is at an all-time low because of natural gas prices. The governor last year proposed a billion-dollar severance tax to fund education, except for the fact he didn't send the money to education. He sent the money to alternative energy programs. Then, by the time we got to a essence of a framework agreement last fall, even the governor admitted his own severance tax was only going to bring in $50 million. So if it will make folks feel better because we have a tax called a severance tax, okay, that's a discussion I'm sure a lot of folks are willing to have. But if folks think that's going to be the end-all, be-all fixing a budgetary problem and spending all the new money the governor wants to spend, that's just not going to happen. And that's why he's proposing a retroactive income tax on working families, because he knows a severance tax will not bring in any money with the state of the natural gas industry. I, I think that the severance tax, for those who support it at this point, if they uh, if they look at it realistically, understand that uh, natural gas prices are down. It would not bring in the kind of income that uh, originally was uh, proposed or at least estimated. Uh, but it's a f- philosophical thing that whether the natural gas industry, the drillers, are uh, actually adding, you know, contributing to the state's budget. It, here's the other thing about the impact fee is that the counties who benefit it from mostly are where those wells are being drilled. Even though other counties in the state do get some of that money, they don't get a whole lot where maybe if there was a severance tax or whatever you wanted to call it, um, that it would be spread out throughout the state a little bit more. Well, and the impact fee actually does spread out money across the state, not only for roads and bridges, but for environmental programs. you got the portion going to all counties that fill any sort of impact, which pretty much so ends up being the entire state. And then you've got the funds going into our, our environmental stewardship programs, which are where the funds should be going to help safeguard against any potential environmental impacts from the industry in the future. So we're investing in local communities, we're investing in infrastructure statewide, but we're also investing in making sure uh, we leave a good and sustainable environmental situation for all communities across the state in the future. No, but I, Representative, what I'm saying is that, yeah, even though uh, all counties are benefiting, if it was a severance tax, and I'm not going to get into, you know, we have so many other things to talk about, that it would be spread out a little more, more equally across the state. Uh, I, I'm sure folks could have that discussion anytime you're talking about any tax increase proposal. There's always the discussion on which tax do you increase, how much do you raise it, and where the money goes. So I don't think that's a, a new discussion, but when we dealt with the impact fee, again, 12.5% effective tax rate, you know, the overwhelming majority of the folks at the time, and that's only been three, four years ago, said we want to take care of local impacts, we want to take care of infrastructure across the state, and we want to safeguard our environment. If folks want to have a discussion of removing the dollars from local impacts, removing the dollars from infrastructure, and don't want to invest in our environment, I guess that's a discussion some folks can put on the table. The increase in uh, the personal income tax, you touched on it. Uh, the governor's proposing an increase from 3.07% to 3.4%. How is that going to be received in your caucus? You know, it's not going to be received well, and not just from a personal income tax perspective, but the retroactivity. Uh, Not only are they looking to take more money out of a worker's paycheck going forward, but you're going to have to reimburse the state for the tax increase that you're now going to be in charge for the first half of this year that wasn't in place. I'm not sure that makes sense under any realm of discussion. And for our members in particular, and I don't think it's just the House Republican Caucus, we believe any discussion 
on an income tax or sales tax should be directly related for property tax reform or property tax elimination. It shouldn't just be used for more spending. It should be shifting the burden away from our local homeowners so they're not losing their homes because of our, our school property tax system. That's a discussion we're willing to have, whether it be with the budget or without the budget, uh, but we're not interested in just increasing income taxes, particularly retroactively, on workers just to increase spending. Senator Costa, in our first portion of the program, and Governor Wolf has said this as well, that uh, if Republicans don't come to the table and agree to some of these uh, tax increases, that where the taxes will increase, in the education area anyway, is on the local school district level, uh, and that it will mean uh, additional taxes or increased taxes in property taxes. How do you uh, respond to that? I think it's a common scare tactic that this administration has used over the last couple of years and the Democratic Party has used during the Corbett administration. But what they fail to recognize is the very fact that property taxes at a local level actually increased more under the Rendell administration when there was a $2 billion increase in basic ed funding than they did under the Corbett administration, where we had to tighten our belts and actually live within our means. So the numbers actually don't play out with that trend at all. If you look at the last 20 years in the state of Pennsylvania, we had higher property tax increases at the local level when the state was investing five, six, seven percent increases in basic education every single year than we did under the Corbett administration. Mm. Uh, You know, one of the things that uh, uh, will have to be taken into consideration is that, uh, you know, what we do spend on the the local level. I've seen figures that Pennsylvania uh, spends per student. We're in the top 10. And in the last few years that we have not seen a whole lot of increase in uh, test scores, for example. So uh, money, more money doesn't mean better education, but would Republicans agree that we do need an increase in education funding? I mean, Uh, you did agree to that. Absolutely. We sent the governor a budget with a $150 million increase in basic education alone, and I think your point is well made. We spent an average of over $15,000 a student across Pennsylvania on their K-12 through education. The national average is around $12,000. We're spending over $3,500 more per student than the national average. We have to make sure we're getting the biggest bang for our buck with those dollars, that we're actually holding school districts accountable to producing the results we expect for that sort of investment. And to be fair, 90, 95% of our schools do very, very well. But 5 to 10%, we're going to have to adapt because kids are falling behind within some of those school districts, and they don't deserve to be left behind from their very earliest years in their educational program. Governor Wolf tied uh, the funding to a new funding formula for schools to try to uh, equalize this a little bit more between richer and poorer school districts. Would you support that? Absolutely. And that was one of the bones of contention last fall. Uh, The administration uh, had refused to accept the new basic education funding formula. We are glad that the governor has realized that that is a positive direction for all of our school districts to bring fair and equitable funding uh, to all schools across this state. And we think that's something we're more than willing to work with them on. All right, let's take a phone call. Hello, you're on on the air. Hello? Yes, Wes, you're on the air. Thank you. I just want to make sure that uh, it's understood that if the state does not provide funds for education uh, for the local people, uh, that and, and the argument is they don't want to raise taxes, that yes, 
the districts will have to raise taxes and uh, the individuals will have to pay the taxes anyway. So I think everything that's been said is, has been true by what, uh, the last few moments. But the final effect of not supporting education to levels that are needed by the school districts means that the school districts have no choice and they have to end up taxing up their local people anyway. So I would rather have the tax come from the state level because it would be more evenly distributed and probably be at a, low, a lower level than if the uh, school district has to pass on the tax to support their budget. All right, Wes, thank you very much for your call. Representative? Well, I think that's a discussion we just had, but once again, I would point out we're spending $3,500 per student over the national average. We're totaling $27 billion on educational spending across this state. Uh, at some point, we have to stop the spending. At some point, we've got to address the cost drivers, like the unfunded mandates, uh, like our pension system. At some point, we've also got to have a discussion on the local share versus the state share. I think there's broad support in the legislature from shifting away from local school property taxes to a statewide source of funding education. Uh, that's a different discussion than just adding more money and more taxes for more spending over and over and over again. I want to ask you the same question I asked Senator Acosta. If you were to sit down with Senator Acosta and your other uh, colleagues, Republican, Democrat, uh, and the governor's office, uh, the administration, how would you start that conversation today? I think it would be very simple. I think we need to recognize the realities that exist. I think we need to recognize that we've got a budget for this year that's almost 90 percent done. I think the first thing we need to do, let's close out that last 10 percent. And then let's bring all the other items back to the table. And we don't have to wait till after budget hearings. We don't have to wait till mid-May or mid-June to do so. We begin immediately discussing each of those items, property tax reform, pension reform, liquor privatization, basic ed funding, structural deficit, a fair funding formula. And we do so in an expedited fashion. But let's close out this year's budget first so nobody has to worry, whether you're a human service agency, whether you're a school district, whether you're a prison guard, whether you're going to have enough money to make it through this year. Is there any reason for us to be optimistic as Pennsylvanians? Look, it, divided government is a challenge. There's no doubt about it. And we're at a crossroads in Pennsylvania where we've got a lot of big decisions to be made. The one thing that does keep me uh, looking at it from an optimistic perspective, we've got a lot of big ideas at the table, property tax reform, liquor, pension reform, basic ed funding. They've been decades in the making. If somehow we're able to work with our colleagues, Republican and Democrat, House and Senate, and eventually with the governor to bring these ideas to a head, to actually enact the reforms necessary to take these ideas off the table, it's generational change. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Once-in-a-lifetime opportunities are not easy. They're challenging. They're frustrating. But if they come to fruition, it could be an amazing turning point for this state. Uh, Representative Reed, we only have about 30 seconds left, and I do have to go back for just a moment. Uh, you said sitting down and talking and you know, getting the, the current fiscal year budget taken care of. Uh, House Republicans said no tax increase. Is there any scenario you see where House Republicans would agree to one? Uh, I think right now for 1516, I think with us being eight months into the fiscal year, we just need to close out the budget. We don't need to increase taxes to do so. 
let's close out the budget, let's minimize the spending. Some of the money the governor had proposed, some of the money we sent the governor that he vetoed in December could not even be spent now because of how far you're into the fiscal year. Let's close it out. Let's get the rest of the money to the school districts and the prisons and our Medicaid recipients. And then let's get into the broad discussion on 1617 because there are going to be some challenges. There's no doubt about it. There are other big ideas at the table. We want to have those discussions. Let's get to it. House Majority Leader, Republican Representative Dave Reed of Indiana County, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Coming up tomorrow, a couple topics. We're going to talk about bipolar disorder. Also, some questions about the presidential race.